Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Studio 19 is back at IPA's ACT's headquarters in Canberra today with an all-star cast. And indeed, the event is being recorded on video. So if you would like to watch it later on and not just listen, you can do that. July is Innovation Month for the APS. Innovation Month has been a wonderful initiative since 2011. And it's all about celebrating the great creativity and imagination of Australian public servants. And it's not just here in Canberra, but public servants across Australia, and not only in the federal government, but in the states, territories, and indeed local councils. Of course, this year, like so many things in our lives, Innovation Month will be different because of COVID. But uh, I did take a look at the Public Sector Innovation Network site a little earlier today, and there is plenty planned for and to look forward to. Uh, The Australian New Zealand School of Government, in partnership with the Centre for Public Impact, will be running a six-part webinar series looking at topics including the reinvention of government and Leading with Humility. The OECD Observatory of Public Administration will host a conversation with Dr. Michael Schwager, the Director General of IP Australia, about the progress his organisation is making in improving their impact through innovation. And I do have first-hand experience of the work that Michael and his team are doing at IP Australia, and it is seriously impressive. So don't miss that. The Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources are co-hosting a session with Nesta on participatory Tory futures, that's a difficult word, how we can be more inclusive and work together in the best interests of citizens. And there is a full list of all the awards for the much sought after Public Sector Innovation Awards. So jump onto the Public Sector Innovation Network site and check out everything that is on offer in Innovation Month. Today, we will explore the topic of innovation in the APS, but in the context of the ongoing challenges of dealing with COVID-19 and looking at it through the lens of industry, innovation, education and skills and the importance of that work in helping Australians deal with the economic fallout of the pandemic. My guests today are the people with their hands on the steering wheel of the Australian government's industry, innovation, science, energy, skills, employment and education policy. Dr. Michelle Brunages is the Secretary of the Department of Education, Skills and Employment, a position she has held since 2016. Michelle was born in the New South Wales town of Tumut, which is not far from here in Canberra, beginning her distinguished career in public service first as a primary school teacher before moving on to teach high school maths and computing in Sydney's western suburbs. Dr Brunages has led both the New South Wales and ACT Government Education Departments and holds a PhD in Education Measurement from the University of New South Wales. Dr Brunages, welcome to Work With Purpose. 
Great to be here. David Fredericks is the Secretary of the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. David has a degree in law with first class honours and a degree in economics from the University of Sydney. He practised as a barrister for five years before taking on one of those magical public service careers where he's worked as a director of economic reform in the Solomon Islands. He's worked as an advisor in both state and federal ministerial offices, as well as serving in a range of senior roles in government portfolios, including the environment, attorney generals and finance. He joins me also in the studio. David, welcome to Work With Purpose. Thank you for having me. Um, A regular feature of Work With Purpose are the questions of the IPA future leaders. And today we're joined live by one of our most prolific contributors, uh, Dr. Steph McLennan, who works as an Antarctic geoscientist as part of the National Earth and Marine Observation Branch at Geoscience Australia. She'll be asking the questions live today. Steph, welcome to you. Great to be here, David. And as part of this opening of Innovation Month, as we smash the imaginary champagne bottle on the good ship innovation as it slides into the water, we have Bell Hogg with us today who will draw our conversation to create a static visual record of our conversation. So, Bell, to you, uh, thank you for joining us today. A big, long introduction, but let's get to it. David Fredericks, I might just start with you because one of the insights from Work With Purpose that has, in fact, quite surprised me is just how closely industry and government work together in the interests of citizens and particularly in in a crisis. So um, just to to start us off, can you describe that working relationship and and how it has helped Australia manage the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, thank you for that. I mean, that that is a very important question, uh, and particularly, as you say, uh, as we work our way into Innovation Month, because in many ways, innovation has been the hallmark of the relationship between government and industry through this pandemic period. Mm. And I'm actually extremely proud of the relationships that have been formed between my department and industry, but frankly, more importantly, between the individuals working in my department and industry. Uh, And that's been across a range of issues. Uh, I I really just, at this stage, just call out two. Mm -hmm. So one is, I mean, obviously government has an expectation in a time of crisis that it receives the best possible intelligence it can about how a crisis is affecting industry and industry sectors. So the department, my department, went out of its way to set up a a weekly forum with all of the representatives of the major sectors, very transparent, very open, very honest, sharing of understanding, sharing of intelligence about the real world impacts of the crisis on their business. Uh, And it became a crucial input into government decision making. So you can only get that crucial input if you have a relationship of trust uh, and if you have a, a relationship of openness between institutions, but again, more importantly, between people. So were those relationships already in place or did you have to spin them up pretty quickly? Uh, Both. So, of of course, the industry department has always had enduring relationships with different parts of industry for which we're responsible. But the reality is the the overwhelming impact of the the COVID crisis uh, across the breadth of industry with differential impacts on different parts of industry meant we needed to get more granular 
understandings about each of the various sectors. Mm. And so that meant we, to, to use your language, we had to spin up those relationships more quickly and more thoroughly and more regularly. And the interesting thing is, I mean, part of the learning for us out of it is those relationships now to us are precious. Mm. Uh, and the thing we'll want to guard against is, is kind yeah, of slipping away from those relationships because they are precious. They're a great source of intelligence. And to be really frank, I, I think it's what the public would expect of the public service and what the public would expect of industry that we are working together to identify problems and try to solve problems. It doesn't mean we're always going to agree. We come at issues from different perspectives as we should. Mm. But that open-mindedness to solve problems, I think, is really important. Um, in an earlier episode of Work With Purpose, um, Elizabeth Kelly told a, a great story that part of your uh, department had the responsibility for the medical stockpile and was pivoting some of the resources that you had in the department to find the companies yeah. to be able to produce the material. But she also made mention of the fact that from the earliest days, you were getting ready for the economic fallout, the economic impact. Can you just give us a bit of an insight as to what you were thinking about to get ready, yeah. you know, for what is coming? So that's, so that's again, I'll, I'll reach back to those relationships that we had with industry and in a sense how they've matured as the nature of the crisis and its impact on Australia has changed. So what Liz was talking about there is the early days when our initial concern, our conversations were about the relative strength of those supply chains. Uh, and they were crucial. People can remember uh, that, you know, there was strong concern about the potential lack of availability of face masks, uh, of ventilators. And I was very proud of the department in going to work with the private sector. And I should say with other government departments, the DFAT were magnificent, defence were magnificent in coming together to help secure those supply chains. So that was the crisis at, the, at that minute. Mm. But of course, as that issue was was dealt with, the next concern that came onto the plate was the medium to long-term prospects of industry, given the implications of the economic shutdown. And so demand issues started to become important. And one of the things that I've, I think has been a, uh, one of the strengths of the relationship is we've been able to move our discussions with industry from discussions about the immediate, which was supply chain vulnerability, and we've now pushed through into medium to long-term issues about how government can potentially assist in dealing with problems for industry caused by the economic crisis and, in particular, demand issues going forward. So, so to answer you... your question, we were, we were, in a sense, those conversations about the medium to long term were germinated yep. in discussions around their short term. And what, just give me just a quick example, perhaps, of something that is looking at those demand issues and, and the role that government can play working with industry to ensure that um, they can be underpinned, perhaps. Yeah. So I think the best example of that in, 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 a, in a relatively tight circle is around the issue of medical supplies, mm -hmm. where essentially, as I said, initial discussions with industry and the activity that we did was about enhancing those supply chains, securing supply. But we're now in an enduring conversation with those same uh, groups about what the medium to long-term demand will be on, a, on uh, for supplies, noting that we're in a more challenging world, noting that that means that some of the international relationships that we've been able to rely upon to secure supply are more fragile. Uh, and so, in a sense, it's an iterative process because 
you know, we're alert to those broader issues. We're able to advise industry about those broader issues that they otherwise have difficulty having visibility of. And they're then able to iteratively work with us on what can be done to better secure that future. Mm. Um, Michelle, if I might throw to you, just can you take us through your particular journey um, from those very earliest days? What was exercising your mind? And as David mentions, this sort of medium to longer term, that's really starting to get into that education skills piece. So, but before we get to that, just that first days, what was it like for you? Yeah, so um, we, we just seemed to emerge from a bushfire scenario where we'd been working closely with our colleagues in states and territories. And the timing was, it was time to go back to school. Um, and so schools were, were, um, were working closely with state and territory colleagues. So, of course, once COVID hit, there needed to be the consideration of how we were going to facilitate education from a whole range of different settings uh, than what we traditionally did as schooling as an institution. And so as a group of director generals and chief executives across the country, um, we worked closely with those to facilitate things like the sharing of digital learning objects to ensure everyone had a same kind of scenario as David, what was the stock and supply that we had uh, ready, um, who held copyright on each of those things and how could we free some of that copyright so we could maximise the... Um, you know, the content, digital content for delivery in different states and territories. Um, and so working quickly, working with uh, letting go of some of the state and territory barriers that we'd normally see in place uh, happened at amazing speed. Mm. Um, Fell away quickly? Absolutely. It fell away very quickly. And what about the, the curriculum differences? Because they yeah. are all different. Was... Yeah, we do have a national curriculum in the country and we find that there's a you know a common core. Yep. Um, and around the edges of that, there are state and territory um, changes to their syllabus structures. But in the main, the learning objects that we have, it can usually be, um, you know, shared across territory. So we saw a massive share, sharing and networking of digital learning objects uh, to facilitate uh, the then became homeschooling, uh, which brought a new dimension uh, around what that meant for teachers in the workforce, uh, for what that meant for policies, what it meant for parents who are trying to juggle roles and homeschool simultaneously, what it meant for students, what it meant for student engagement. So from that perspective, that was one of the initial things that we saw uh, fall away was some of the state territory boundaries to allow an open sharing and open access to very important curriculum content for students. Um, so in terms then, uh, was there anything that surprised you at that time that, that you didn't think would happen? I think just the speed at which, which yeah. uh, there was a willingness uh, and an attitude of can do, not why we can't do. It was an attitude of uh, can do and, uh, as I said, the speed was phenomenal. Mm. Um, as David said, it's now moving into medium to longer term to start to get your heads around it and you've got your hands on a couple of big policy areas such as skills, such as education uh, and already some big announcements in those, those areas. So how are you going about um, having those discussions and making those decisions about what we need as a country in order to deal with what's ahead of us. So I think we come from a fairly um, solid base of relationships in the education, skills uh, and employment sectors. There's a lot of stakeholder engagement 
uh, just like David, that we built on, but the closeness of those relationships in uh, having stakeholders being your eyes and ears on the ground and having a really, really important contribution to play uh, and for us to open our doors uh, to listen to that and and iterate that in a way into policy settings. I think that we've done that. Um, you know, we're, we're doing it in the employment area right now. We know that we've got a huge uh, wave of unemployed and how can we better facilitate and maximise people's opportunities to gain jobs when they do come about um, in, a, in a way that is helpful for reskilling, upskilling, changing directions where people make those choices once we have jobs. In the skills side, another farce, we changed, we broke every every rule in our current book and we made a new book, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> we actually threw the old book away and we started to say how quickly can we get a module of work in the vocational education training sector that um, is a short-term course, a micro-credential. Yep. So rather than full yep. qualifications, we went to short-term term courses and the first one that we rolled out was in infectious um, disease control. So we got a group of people together, that short course is out there. Uh, we spoke to state and territories. There was collaboration across states and territories. There was funding from every state and territory and the Commonwealth to enable free places in a qualification that was really needed in a whole range of workplaces. Fantastic. So again, the book went and yep. a new way of working or a new authorising environment emerged. Well, and this is, I think, part of the theme of Innovation Month really, isn't it? And we... We speak about acceleration as really one of the fundamental changes that you're both going to be to be dealing with. And before we come to, to Steph for a couple of questions from the IPA Future Leaders, I'd like both of you to reflect, given that it is Innovation Month, given that acceleration is a part of it, what are you both going to do in your lines of responsibility to maintain that acceleration in order for Australia to be able to adapt quickly to be able to deal with what's coming in your individual areas. I'll start with you first, David. Uh, so I'd be cautious about the word acceleration. So I think uh, for, uh, moving into the medium to long term, so I think uh, in, in many ways the lesson that we have learnt from the last three months to, to pick up the innovation theme is it's just like there's that old saying that, you know, pressure makes diamonds. I think necessity made for innovation. Uh, and I genuinely believe that. I think, you know, Michelle and I could sit here and we could ream through uh, the innovation that we have overseen, both in the way we work and the nature of the work that we do. Uh, you know, from a very human perspective, you know, I, I couldn't be more proud of the fact that, you know, within the space of a couple of weeks, there was a group of public servants in my department who, whose career was essentially around uh, uh, public policy. They were policy experts. And within two weeks, uh, they had pivoted so that they were driving the relationships with the private sector in dealing with the private sector. Uh, so that sort of personal innovation has been okay. a real key to the success of the public sector uh, over the last three months. So do I, do I need to accelerate that? No. What I need to do is hang on to it uh, and hang on to the capacity uh, for public servants to be able to pivot when needed because uh, that is now a precious commodity that we have. There's an openness amongst our staff to do it. They can see there's benefit to it. And to be perfectly frank, from my own perspective, there's a benefit because as the priorities of government change, I have a greater capacity to move 
in, highly intelligent, highly capable people in to meet those capabilities. So, so yes, we accelerated, but what we uh, and we innovated as a consequence. It, in my view, it's a it's a it's a case of preserving that mentality to want to continue to innovate, and that's really what Innovation Month is about. How so do you do that? So I, I'll be really honest with you. I, I'm a great believer that collaborate that you can create a, a virtuous circle between collaboration and innovation. And in a way, that is what the Innovation uh, Month is about. And it's actually what the Innovation Network is, is about. I don't have all the answers. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I look and hear lessons from other people as to what they're doing and see if I can capture that and turn it to our own purpose. Well, we all act like that. You know, it's one of the joys of, of being in our positions and having collegiate relationships like I have with Michelle. I can learn from her. So I have a greater capacity to innovate because I collaborate. Uh, but then when I innovate, that gives me a greater capacity to then collaborate because I have more to offer. Uh, and so there is a virtuous circle. That's the precious thing that we have to hold. And as I say, before we come to Steph, Michelle, on that... Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's important that we don't lose what we've created in authorising environments and that people have a new level of comfort um, where they feel comfortable outside their last year's comfort zone. You know, it was safe and secure. This is what I did every day. Um, there was a scope and sequence to that work and all of a sudden there wasn't. So the personal sense of fear of failure for some staff can be really high. You know, it's, it's you don't know. And therefore, uh, it's very important that the environment and culture of collaboration um, be at the fore and that people uh, get used to working in a different way, the way they approach problem. They team up, they team back, you know. They shouldn't ever feel professionally isolated or personally isolated, you know, to feel as so though they've got the licence to innovate and come up with creative solutions in a way that um, uh, is not in any, any form of a threat or risk aversion way. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, how we sustain that, um, sure, some of the work has been very late nights and extraordinary effort by a whole range of public service right across the APS. Um, the question for me is how do you take the good bits out and make it sustainable so every night's not like that mm. and how do you, you make it work so it works well and we hold the momentum going forward? Fantastic. Steph, over to you. Yeah, thanks, David. Um, probably a question to start with for you, Michelle, but David, I'd be interested in your thoughts as well. Over the last few months, we've seen a seismic shift in the way we work and uh, the requirements of the future workforce. Um, going forward into the long term, how do you think the current workforce will need to adapt um, to a post-COVID world and, and how will we provide the necessary skills going into that next generation, that future workforce? Mm. Look, I th you know, I think the public service has done an amazing job and I think they, they have exercised a lot of skills that weren't at the forefront of mind that, but were deep in the individuals who've stepped up and taken a really positive attitude and seen their role as service to the public. It's been really at the forefront. Um, the nature and type of skills I think that we are starting to value more and more are things like scenario building. You know, it's a bit like the wargaming or the scenario building. How do you build up a scenario? How do you consider the consequence of impact of a particular policy setting? Have you thought about that before you deliver advice to government? Have you listened? to what's happening on the ground. How well connected are you with your stakeholder? 
engagement so that you know that you've got a litmus test about different views. And I actually think diversity is a strength. So I, I actually um, strongly believe in many different views coming together and that, in fact, some of the work and things that we do in the future are bringing the traditional discipline areas and thinking about you're going to have to be deep in more than one, but deep in two, and the intersection of those discipline areas is where the innovation comes. So if I look at some of the, the models that David's using over in industry and I think about vocational education and training, what could, we will gain a greater strength through our collaboration in terms of our, our two areas of responsibilities than if I stay and puddle in my own patch and David puddles in his. You know, the strength is going forward. So I think that skill set, you know, the, the authorising environment to go out and collaborate, how we build scenarios, how we apply critical thinking, how we do what-if analogies, you know, all of those things, critical thinking, the creativity, the licence to create things that people would normally say are very left field, I would encourage staff to go out and do that and that's the way we'll have the best possible advice for government of the day. So I'd probably just add, uh, in the interest of time, I'd just add one point and reinforce one. So the point I'd add is uh, I think an essential ingredient for the public service going forward is going to be uh, an open night mindedness, a curiosity uh, and the courage that comes with, with maximising that uh, and, and in a sense... You know, in many ways, to, to pick up an earlier point Michelle made, because we're in a crisis environment, the sort of traditional pressures down on that creativity uh, were lifted. There was more of a permissive environment to creativity because it was all hands to the pump. And it is worth my remembering, it always takes courage to, to, to pursue that creativity. Uh, so I think that's going to be a crucial um, quality for the public service and public servants uh, uh, in particular. Uh, and then the point I'd reinforce that Michelle made, and I'd really enforce this really strongly, is that human capacity for public servants to be able to engage empathetically, proactively, uh, open-mindedly with, um, I'm not going to use, stakeholders is a technical word, but what I mean is by with colleagues, colleagues in the public sector, uh, with counterparts in the private sector, uh, I often say to people, at the end of the day, I think success in the public service is... It, 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 you need to remember that public service is a people business. It's about relationships. It's about securing relationships, enduring relationships and putting those relationships to work. Uh, and so for mine, it's actually something we've been discussing in our department. We're very, very conscious in everything that I said about the role that our department plays that we have a bit of a responsibility to ensure that our staff are properly skilled and equipped to be able to deal, for example, with the private sector. Sometimes in you know, a very difficult commercial or quasi-commercial negotiation. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, that's, at the, that's at the edge of public service craft <laughs> as a public servant to be dealing with the intricacies uh, of a negotiation with the private sector. Uh, certainly one of the learnings I found since I came to, the, to my department is uh, how, how difficult that exercise can be and how we have a responsibility to equip our staff to do it. And if we get it right, the outcomes for the country are outstanding mm. because you do then get um, those productive outcomes of high-quality public-private um, uh, engagement. Yeah, yeah, terrific. Yeah, I really like those points that you raise about curiosity and courage. I think it comes back to that personal licence for innovation um, that you spoke about earlier. Um, another question um, from the committee that... Uh, Peter Shergold last year said in an address to the public sector 
um, innovation conference that there's a he's noticed a chasm between the energy and ambition of leaders wanting to drive innovation and the day-to-day -day reality of the public sector uh, workplace. So in your views, uh, how can leaders bridge that divide and what role do you think aspiring and future leaders have to play in that? I think every person has a leadership role. Um, you know, I think sometimes you lead from the middle. <laughs> you don't always lead from the top. You lead from the middle. Um, you um, engender a distributed leadership. You never want to become person dependent with anything that you're doing. You want to be able to have people step up, step out in a way that acknowledges the particular talents and skills that they have. Um, and so I think, you know, part of what I said before was about the culture, the way in which we work, how we set clear expectations and how we set up opportunities for staff to interact and provide that authorising environment for them to do that. That'll engender a leadership change that uh, pervades the whole organisation. Um, and as I said, individuals will come to places where their tolerance for risk or, um, you know, their, their sense of personal courage, um, personal resilience um, and how you look at that and create the environment that everyone is aware of the human decency that underpins that interaction and is able to move individuals forward um, to, so that they can contribute to the organisation. So I have a view that, you know, every public servant has a leadership role in their areas of responsibility. Uh, and my job as secretary of my area is to reach out to, to other departments, David, and engender a way of working that encourages all those great talents and skills to come forward. Um, and we lead from the middle, from the bottom, from the top. Yeah, I can't really add much to that other to reinforce. It is interesting in this discussion, the two of us just keep coming back to that permission environment. And to be honest with you, that quote, if there is a chasm, then I suspect that's actually not a consequence of the sort of, uh, I think that's potentially a negative consequence of potentially not, there not being sufficient uh, permission environment for people who are more junior in an organisation to, as Michelle said, to take a risk and be supported. When, when that risk doesn't pay off. Uh, I mean, we always have to be mindful of risk, right? That's important, that's a, a central role for all public servants. And at the end of the day, always involves judgment. But I think at the end of the day, the sort of calculus needs to push in favour of a, a greater tolerance of risk, uh, both for the organisation and for the people within it through all ranks, uh, on an understanding that uh, uh, where a risk doesn't come off, it's not a failure, it's something to learn from. And it's, it, it's, that sounds trite, but it, I can tell you for the public servants listening to, to this or watching this, that's real. Uh, so for me, that's crucial and it's, it is interesting. We keep coming back to it and it's at all levels, right? I mean, one of the, the elements is we sort of talk about collaboration. And to be really honest with you, it's really easy for me and Michelle to collaborate. We're peers. But... There's a, there's a small risk calculus in our staff uh, um, um, reaching across and collaborating. So there needs to be a permission environment for my staff to have frank and open conversations with Michelle's staff about policy issues. I have to say, I think the public service in my time in the public service is so much stronger on that. And I think that's been both led from the top because of the sort of culture of, of previous secretaries to really drive that, 
uh, and frankly, I think it's been led by by our staff who 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 know that there's there's greater understanding and learning to be had by reaching across and finding a peer in another department. Uh, it's you know there's there's strength in that collectivity, and people know that. Mm. People have got to be, you know, comfortable in their own stride. I always say to my staff, it's something I say all the time, you know, whenever you interact with someone during the day, you don't know what they've come from and you don't know what they're going home to. So the interactions that you have in the workplace are actually fundamental to the level of comfort and the capacity for you to do do your very best um, and the decencies of interaction and reaching out in the relationships, as David said earlier, are fundamental. If we don't have that, people don't feel comfortable. They feel as though they have to do this or they become more risk averse. And so I think for us to actually set that example, in some ways lead by example, but to ensure that we never ever forget that in the workplace or at home or on a video link or in a Zoom conference, wherever we are, uh, the nature of the interaction is fundamental. And that trust that David spoke of, I think in your very first response to the question, is fundamental. What's the professional trust? And where's that threshold? Yeah, terrific. Thank you both very much. Thank you very much, Steph. And if I might just ask a question, I know we're speaking across and down, but what about up and, you know, through this period? What changes have there been in terms of your interactions with ministers and ministerial officers? Yeah, um, I think it um, it is grown in intensity. I'd have to say that intensity. I mean, taking the <laughs> advice and constant conversations that, um, you know, uh, given that the government is under pressure, there's a need for us to provide advice to ministers in a very fast and rapid way. And so in some places that meant to verbal advice very quickly where, um, you know, there were meetings called that our ministers had to attend. Um, I think it's been a really good... I think they... You know, for for me, um, I have three ministers. So for me, in that piece of architecture, it has meant making sure that you balance their needs and understand the pressure that they're under and uh, be able to provide the best best possible support. So I think it's worked very well. It's worked very well. In your experience, David? It's the same. I think the the great strength of... I mean, I, I think the great strength of the crisis is, you know, the Prime Minister called it a Team Australia moment. Well, for the relationships between ministers and departments in, 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 in their entirety, it was a Team Australia moment. I've certainly felt that the work that my department has done has been very well respected. Uh, it's been very well listened to. Uh, appropriate... Um, uh, credit, if you like, to the staff who have done it has been given. It's very respectful. Mm. And in a sense, that's very empowering. Uh, so I think it's been a really rewarding experience, uh, although under huge pressure, long hours, etc. But I think it's been a very rewarding experience because departments and, and, and people within it have been made to feel like they're making a real contribution to government decision-making. Mm. Uh, and I have to say for myself... You know, I kind of went out of my way to make sure I've reinforced to staff that their advice was being listened to and and taken into account uh, because, in a sense, you create a virtual circle and, you know, that redoubles the commitment and the thoughtfulness about that. So, I, yeah, as I say, I, I couldn't be 
uh, more content, if you like, about where the relationship has <laughs> <look> ended. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We'll make sure we get that on the on the tour. <laughs> Big smile. <laughs> a, a final question. A final question to both of you, and I do want to return to the you know the theme of innovation and innovation month. Innovation month at a time of COVID with lots going on. What's the message you want to send to your people and to public servants at this time about what perhaps can be achieved in this next four weeks that can assist with the huge workload that is that is coming and the huge challenge that's coming? And it's not just going to be a short-term challenge, it's going to be a long-term challenge. So just that, that, that single thought for this innovation month at a time of COVID, the message to, uh, to public servants. Um, I think we should acknowledge and recognise the innovation that people have already displayed. Like I know, David, there's kind of innovation awards that I know in each department. But I think that's a really important thing for staff to to be recognised and acknowledged for the way in which they've worked is highly valued Um, and that we want to continue what's good around that uh, into the future but make it sustainable into the future. Okay. And David, for you. Yes. So for me, I think it is. Uh, I want to. I want to um, bottle uh, and keep for all time an understanding amongst all of us of the power of um, collective work together, of reaching across to our colleagues uh, in that very open and transparent way, and understanding that there's strength in that relationship, which will endure. Uh, into the foreseeable future. And, and in a sense, as you know, government consideration moves inevitably, as you said, over the next four weeks or six weeks, from that shorter-term perspective to the medium to longer-term perspective mm-hmm. and understanding that those relationships and that collectivity will be just as powerful mm-hmm. as we shift into the medium to long-term as it was in dealing with the short-term. Mm-hmm. For sure. David Fredericks, Michelle Brunnages and Steph McLennan, thanks to all of you for your service and best of luck to you and your teams for the challenges ahead and the opportunities ahead as well. It certainly will be a difficult time and one where certainly the APS will need to continue to pull together. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network. And if you would like to check out the GovComs podcast, please type that into your favourite podcast browser and it is sure to come up. And if you do happen to come across our social media promotion for this episode of Work With Purpose, please pass it along by sharing. And if you're feeling particularly generous and moved, a rating or a review of the program will help us to be discovered. Uh, Next week, we shift our conversation to the impact of the pandemic on Indigenous Australians, when we will be joined by Ray Griggs, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Indigenous Australians Agency, and Letitia Hope, who is the Deputy Chief Executive Officer of the same agency. That episode will be recorded in what would have been traditionally NAIDOC week, but that This year has been postponed to November because of the pandemic. Uh, The episode will air on Monday the 6th of July. Thanks again to IPA and to the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support. And thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. And thanks to my guests for such a wonderful conversation today. But that's it for now. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for the moment... 
It's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 